told us that they lost their home and sometimes they still lay our hands on their head. Something that Dad has always done is lay his head on their hand on their head and uh, done the Lord blessing to them at night. Yeah. And have done that since they were small. Um, I think y'all know that our oldest um, is choosing a different path at this time, but I found myself a few weeks ago that when we were at the airport um, asking her, could I do that? And she did not tell me no. So I was in the airport with my head, hand laid on her head, praying that blessing on her. Mm. And so um, that's something that I guess we've done their whole life. Yeah. That's really beautiful, Terry. And I can, we can hear your heart in this and your love for your daughters. What's another story? Another, another way you've been formed or um, your mom uh, tried to form you? Yes, John? In my childhood, I went to Episcopal Church uh, to about six or eight years old. That was kind of a church singing. Uh, and then we quit and then you go to church. And uh, I was very religious. She used to say all religions, any religion is a good religion. Mostly Christian, but others too. And then I drifted off in a long, crazy story. But I went up in a cult, went using drugs. What I call them little highland drugs. So I love them not a lot. They were really, really close. And she was terrified of me being on drugs. Because I was scrutinized. And she prayed hard. Really hard. She has all her friends to pray. And she has notion is I hitchhiked up down the East Coast. As I called her places, she has notion that prayers would not cross state lines. Hmm. So she asked her people all down the East Coast to pray for her. So so my mother. And because of that, got to go to soccer drugs. Blah, 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 blah. Moved in with her. Blah, 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 blah. And, and, um, and I was still seeking, what is life all about, please? And because LSD was not doing it for me. Um, and she pointed me to church, charismatic physical uh, church, where God used my drug rehab. Mm-hmm. And she supported that. If she had not, I would have overdosed or I would have been a hippie or some kind of crazy thing. Uh, so she guided me and she prayed hard. She loved me. And she, uh, she wanted and wished and saw the best in me. Whole time. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's because of me and my dad. My, 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 I never could please my dad, but it's kind of like I always please my mom. She always wanted and desired and was raised in the best. She's so positive. Mm-hmm. Thank you, John. Um, I'm seeing a theme here of moms that are praying for their kids. That's great. Um, one more um, a way that your mom uh, influenced, formed you spiritually, or, yes, Gary. When I was a kid, I had sort of a dead father, and uh, but my mother was a really good Christian woman, and she took us to church. Every time the doors were open, we were at church, and she just kind of instilled that into me. But even when I was a young adult, I, I kind of got to a point in my early 20s where I just kind of gave up on church. And I left church and did not. I swore I would never set foot in a church again. And then one day I met Charles. Mm-hmm. And he convinced me to start coming back to church. <laughs> so I've been going. It's tricky like that, yeah. I've been going to church for nine years. Now. Yeah. But you remember that heritage of your mom and how she. That was foundational. And even all those years, it was like 25 years. Mm-hmm. I would not go to church. That basic 
Um, so my mom, I remember, and I know that she prayed for me a lot as well, similar to well, the stories we've been sharing. Um, in fact, I think she got to a point where she was like, in my teenage years, she's like, I, I can't make him <laughs> do what I want him to do. I can't make him believe in God or, or want to follow Jesus. Um, I can't change his heart. I can kind of put some boundaries up in his life. We can ground him. We can take the, the car keys away, whatever else. But I, we can't change what's going on in here. And so I think she she just started to pray. And um, when I did uh, become a Christian when I was 18, she uh, she sent me a letter that talking about how long she'd been praying for me and how she had seen like Satan's the words to choose or Satan's claws in my heart. And she just prayed and prayed for me. Um, and so I, I think God heard her prayers and I'm always thankful for my mom's prayers. Um, she would also put, maybe you can relate to this. She would put um, messages uh, kind of in different places of the house. And um, on the back door, there was a sign that said, remember who you are and whose you are. And so I remember that one because as a teenager, and I know we've got teens with us today. I'm, I'm really glad that y'all are here. Uh, thumbs up, two thumbs up. But I got to be kind of a punk uh, to my mom. And I'm like, remember who you are and whose you are, you know, like. I just didn't I didn't appreciate I didn't really respect her attempts to spiritually form me. Um, I really didn't think she really knew much about my life or that she knew that much at all. I didn't really respect her that much. And so the ways that she would try to form me, the ways that she would try to uh, to to take uh, her role as a mom, as an authority in my life, as someone that is spiritually uh, pouring into my life. I was kind of like, nah, 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 nah. You know, like I didn't respect it. I didn't care about what she said until later. And so looking back, I'm like, wow. Um, first of all, I, I feel sadness about the way that I, I treated her. But also I think about just the immaturity that I had at that moment. And I was thinking about that in terms of today's passage and in terms of uh, the way that this church in Corinth um, kind of feels like they got it all figured out. Um, and at the same time, they've got some messed up stuff going on in their lives and their church. And yet they're still like we, you know, they've got their heads up high and they're like, whatever, Paul, you know, whatever, Paulos, whoever, whichever one they like. And so this is kind of this uh, attitude they've got um, about the spiritual authorities in their life. And so, um, all right, we are in First Corinthians five today. And you may be like. Why in the world are we doing 1 Corinthians 5 on Mother's Day, of all things? Um, and it's not probably that funny if I say, well, there is a mom in the passage. And <laughs> I'm sorry, because Julie didn't get to vet this sermon. So there's going to be crass jokes and bad humor. This is not Julie approved. None of what's coming. Um, and so, <clears throat> but... Uh, the reason we're in First Corinthians is that um, this is the Easter season, okay? And so this is the resurrection season. And so uh, what we wanted to do in our times together and in our discussion and our message is explore this new resurrection life that has broken into the world through the resurrection of Jesus. If you were here on Easter, Charles talked about, um, he talked about it like this, like the future where God's 
God has uh, the way with the world that he wants with his creation where he is ruling, where his love is being poured out and spread, uh, where his life is in people, where his justice is happening all over the world, where his holiness and his glory are washed over all of creation like the waters cover the sea. That's the future. That's what we call heaven. Okay, where all tears are wiped away from people's eyes. Where there's no more sorrow, where pain and death and sin are dumped into this lake of fire and burned up and are no more. Even our enemy is gone. That's the future, right? But in the resurrection of Jesus, that future has broken into the present. It, we're starting to experience it now. And what, what the, the early Christians started to say was like, wow, this, this kingdom of God where God rules... We're starting to experience this in new ways because we're where the spirit of Jesus is at work in me and in this community. Wow, we're experiencing something new. We're experiencing new life. This is this is what God we thought he was going to do it at the very end, but he's starting to do it now. But the tricky part is that there's still there's this there's this future world that's come into the present. But then there's still this present world and it's almost as if these two worlds for Paul, they they overlap. OK, and they even talk about how in in the world that is in the broken world that's full of sin, uh, there is a ruler of that world. So Jesus is king of the kingdom. The Bible makes that really clear. The kingdom of God. He's the authority. He's the boss. He's the Lord. He's the savior. He's the lover of our souls. But in the kingdom of the air or some other, there have different names for this present evil age, the way that Paul describes it. There's a different sort of ruler and he rules with deception. And so we think about what's happening in the Corinthian church. And this is the people that have been made new that God has is doing something in them as a community. He's filling them with life. And at the same time, they're living in a world where there there is a battle against them, trying to deceive them, trying to say, oh, this is what this new life looks like. And so one thing I love in First Corinthians one, as I look back at this passage, uh, at, at where we've been the last few weeks in First Corinthians one. Um, if you want to take open your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter five, but it's taken a while to get there. Um, there's this whole talk about wisdom. And for the Corinthians, again, just remember, if you haven't been here all these weeks, the Corinthians have been after wisdom, spiritual wisdom. And just think like they've been after um, just in-depth, really deep, cool, spiritual things like they want to follow the people that are the most impressive spiritually, that can explain the most, can argue the most. They they want to feel that they are uh, spiritually deep and superior. They even want to we're going to get to they want to have awesome spiritual experiences. And they're saying, you know, they're pursuing wisdom. But in First Corinthians one, chapter 30, uh, he talks about a different kind of wisdom. He says, it's because of God that you are in Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God. And then he explains what that wisdom looks like. He says that wisdom is righteousness, holiness and redemption. Now, if they've been thinking like. This life, this wisdom means that we are, you know, our spirituality was here in terms of inside and our understanding of the world and ourselves. And now it's up here. And especially the way that Apollos describes it, it's up here. And Paul's, you know, and so they're comparing each other. All this is going on. And Paul says, no, wisdom in Christ is righteousness, which you don't do anything to get that. 
You don't follow us. Uh, you, you follow Jesus to get that, but no, no following a certain teacher or leader is going to make you more righteous. You just get that. It's something that you're earning. You're made right with God. And then he says, holiness. The wisdom of God is that your lives are starting to change. And so it's not going to work for you to have these great spiritual insights, but then for all this mess to be happening among you and in your lives where you fight against each other. And then we get to chapter five and what's going on. He's like, you're so proud about your great spirituality, but look at your lives. The wisdom of God happens when your lives are transformed, where you become like Jesus in the way that you love and treat people. That is the wisdom of God. It's not some deep spiritual experience or, or great spiritual awakening and understanding. The, the great awakening is that in the spirit, God is filling your community and he's transforming you to be like him. So I, th- I, I love that um, as a counter to where the Corinthians have been so proud about their great spirituality. And he's like, no, it's a lot more about how you're treating each other. It's a lot more about how you're learning to be like Jesus. And so now we're in chapter five. All right. So straight off the bat, um, he says, "Okay, I've heard it not just from one source, but from many that this is going on. Um, The way he says it, uh, there's sexual immorality, a kind that not even pagans tolerate. So pagans, just remember, these are people that worship the, the pantheon of gods in the Greco-Roman culture, Zeus and everything else. And they are known for being very promiscuous. That there are not a whole lot of boundaries that they really adhere to unless you're part of the Stoic philosophy. They're just kind of like a little bit laissez-faire, anything goes when it comes to sex. But for them, they don't even tolerate this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Okay, so just stopping here for a second. Okay, father's wife probably means... A stepmother, okay? Um, it probably doesn't mean that the father is still in the picture. Um, and it, she is probably not part of the church because she's not mentioned after this. She's probably not a believer. Because um, Paul's not against calling out women uh, or men, uh, but she's not, she's not brought up again. And so it's probably that this man is a part of the church, is doing this. And that the stepmother is, is not part of the church. That's just a little clarifying of the situation here. So in the Roman world, if someone was caught in an incestuous, incestuous relationship, they would exile you to an island. So I, I didn't know that. But that's, that's how much they thought this was, this was a bad practice. They would send you off by yourself to an island. Okay, So they thought this was a terrible practice. And yet... The Corinthian church is proud of what's happening. They're proud of their response to the whole situation. And I think what is re- Paul's really upset with, obviously he's upset with the situation. He's kind of just, I think he's kind of stunned by what he's hearing. But he's mostly stunned with the response of this church. That they are still proud of themselves uh, in the midst of this behavior going on um, that is infecting their church. Um, there's a little bit of a uh, discussion about are they proud uh, in spite of the fact that this guy has done this? Like they're just kind of ignoring it, pushing it to the side, kind of letting the guy get a buy, and they're still just really proud about their great spirituality. Or are they proud 
of the way that they're handling it. And they're, they're proud of the fact that we can accept and love and we're, you know, the, the action here that is disgusting to Paul and to the rest of the, even the pagans around them, um, they've, they've grown to such spiritual heights that they've learned to accept even this. And we get a hint in the next chapter, there's this slogan that Paul says that their church uses in chapter 6, so we'll get there next week. But he says, everything is permissible for me. That's one of their slogans that they had in the church. Everything is, anything goes, anything goes in this church. And you're like, how, how does the church get to the point where they have a slogan, anything goes? Um, well, the, in some ways it makes sense because there's a lot uh, that Paul says and Paul teaches, even that we sing about, about how Christ sets us free. So we are free in Christ. We are free from the from old ways of life, from old ways of thinking that we've been shackled to. Um, you can think about how if you read Acts, Paul and, and Barnabas and the other planters, the other apostles go around and they plant these churches. And then some of the Jews that don't like Paul, they follow after him and they're, they're like, no, this is what you really need to do to follow God. And they say, you need to get circumcised. You need to do this. You need to do that. And Paul comes back. He's like, no, you don't have to do those things in Christ. You are free from that. And so it almost is like they've taken this teaching, the Corinthians did, and they've twisted it to be like, you know, if we really understand ourselves in Christ, we are free. Our, what we do in, in our bodies is not that big of a deal. But, you know, what's really important is our spiritual life. And so we can we can accept and love and understand this situation here and, and embrace it uh, because really what's important is this great spiritual depth that we've reached. It, it really it could be that. And it seems like that might be what's going on. And Paul is like, wow, you guys are proud in this situation. Um, and so he says, no, this is not the way that we're going to respond to this. And so this is a part where I think we start to feel um, in some ways, I think we can align ourselves with Paul's disgust of the situation. I hope that we can. But in other ways, when we get to this whole thing about kind of this courtroom place and like uh, I'm going to stand in in your church in spirit, in, in the spirit. And we're going to call this guy out. Um, we can read this again. Um, so at the very end. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. If we can go to the next part, Ben. Uh, as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul's saying, I'm not with you, but in the spirit, I want you to get together and he's not saying this as a suggestion. He's not saying, like, if you want to follow my advice, this is what you'll do. He's saying, on my authority as an apostle, again, which we, we get kind of uncomfortable when people assert their authority, whether they're trustworthy people or not. We're, we're, we're kind of cut from this cloth where we're like, anytime someone wants to tell us what to do, then I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm, I'm a little bit upset about that. And we get that partly because, um, A... Most of us, I think, are Americans. So our whole country was for, formed on that. Like, we don't like the king telling us what to do. We're going to do our own thing. Um, many of us are also Texans. Not Maybe not everybody but I, in the room, but I think most of us are, are Texans. 
And so Texas is kind of like that too. Like, we're going to do our own thing no matter what the other states do. In fact, we can be our own country, you know. And so we've got this independence on the, on the national, on the state level. And then when we recognize even the culture that we're in now, and if you, you study about, you know, postmodernism and all this, we look at the world around us, we look at the past, um, and we say, and, and, and it, in the, the air that we breathe is this sense of saying any authority that has been, any authority that is present, any system that's present, we're going to tear it down, we're going to take it apart, um, because it's really corrupt anyway. We're going to point out its flaws. And we might build something new, but we really don't know. But we're in a time, we're in a place where there's suspicion of any authority, whether it's spiritual or uh, governmental or, or otherwise. And we just probably just need to own the fact, we just need to live in recognizing that when we come to Scripture, when we come to Scripture about authority and about uh, submission and things like this, that we bring to it. Where we are in place and time. We can't help where we were born or the time that we're in or the philosophies of our age. But that's where we are. And so if we if we feel uncomfortable with Paul asserting his authority or with uh, with some of the things that just kind of you know, get us shaky about uh, texts like this, consider you know, sometimes consider where we're coming from. Consider the world that we're in and the, the ways that that's shaped us. I think that helps us. Uh, wrestle with texts like this. Not that we don't look at it and think and pray and figure out what's going on. In fact, I'm going to open it up in a minute and I want you guys to help me think about this. But recognize where we are in space and time and what's influencing us. So he's saying, I want you to come together and I want you to hand this man over to Satan. Okay? For the destruction of his flesh. Sounds kind of like a horror movie. <laughs> Hand him over to Satan for the destruction, like John just, I can't say it as well as you, the destruction of his flesh. (laughs) I mean, that's literally what it says. Okay? So to understand that, you've got to think about, again, this way of viewing the world that Paul has, where he's seeing the future in the present, okay? But there's still, there's this stuff that Jesus is doing of new life. And then there's stuff that's just where, where we're living in the same time that's broken and that Satan is the ruler of. And so when Paul looks at the Corinthian church, he's looking at this future where where Jesus is coming into the present in their lives and he is filling them with new life. And so to separate, to say for a time, you cannot be a part of this community. We're going to protect ourselves from this behavior by pushing you out. And so. Being delivered over to Satan is saying, okay, you're not going to experience this, this spirit-filled community for a time. And the hope is that the part of you that is living in this way, the part of you that has turned to this life uh, that you're, you're stuck in, is going to be destroyed. And that you will return uh, ready to change, ready for God to change your heart. So I think that's, what, that's what's going on with the hand him over to Satan. So... Uh, as he, as the man is separated from the church, um, from the communion experience, from the life-giving love of what's happening in there, he's in the realm of uh, Satan. And the hope is, is that that break will wake him up and he'll want to return to God. So, we continue. 
Paul goes on to use some metaphors about dough, where you put some yeast in the dough, and the yeast, you work it all through the, through the dough so that it will rise. And so he uses that as a metaphor in saying, okay, in this case, what's happening with this guy that you guys are so proud about and that you're letting happen, it's infecting your community. So this, this community that Jesus has given his life for, that he's filling you up with his spirit, um, you're letting this corrupt what God is doing among you. It's filling up the whole thing. So what do you do with that? You, you cut off the part that's infecting you and you push it aside. And then Paul kind of catches himself here. So he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. And it's almost like he says, I don't want to make them think that they're going to make themselves good and holy by getting rid of this guy. And so he says, as you really are. In other words, God's already made you holy. I want you to live in that way. God has already made you this clean batch. I want you to live in that and then he goes on and he's got a, he, he kind of goes from metaphor to metaphor, which Paul does sometimes. And so he goes from the, the idea of leaven and the batch. And then he goes into this Passover uh, metaphor where you, in he, for him, of course, this is his life. This is his history. So he's just thinking about these things. And he's like, OK, bread. Yeah, there's unleavened bread in the Passover. And then he's like, OK, um, and Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so. But we don't have to judge Paul too strongly for using lots of different metaphors to explain the same thing. But that's what he's doing there. Um, one more thing and then I'm going to open it up for you. Verse 9, he starts to talk about something that he doesn't want them to misapply what's, what he's saying here. He doesn't want them to think that just because in their spiritual family he's, he's saying that we need to send this guy away for a time. It doesn't mean that anybody that lives this way in the rest of the world that you're going to separate from them. He's like, you can't. What are you going to do? You know, you would have to die, basically, to not be able to be around people that are doing all sorts of things all the time. Or you're not supposed to take your whole community and move to a cave somewhere to separate from from the world. That's not what it means to be different. That's not what it means to be in this new life. You're living this life uh, in the middle of a world that's living differently. And that's part of God's plan. It's part of his mission. Part of what it means that God is holy and different is that in the midst of what's not holy, he stands out. And so to be a people that stand out is not a people that separate and go off and live on an island by themselves. It's to be in the midst of the people and to love differently and to offer grace differently and to be a people that stand for justice in the community differently to stand out. That's what that's what he's saying. You have to be there. So you're not going to you're not going to distance yourself from anybody that does this sort of thing. But in the church, it's different because you're God's doing something in you. So there's a difference between the way that you interact with people that are in the family and that are not in the family. And so he he goes on to say there's a he gives a list and we're going to get to several lists when we get through Corinthians about Ways that he says this, these are ways that we live that are part of this old system. And I need we, these are things that infect the whole body. I want you to separate. I want you to, to protect from these practices. And so he's going to talk about that in the next chapter. So it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's a funny Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> um, 
And it's hard to know what to do with it. So I want to open it up to you, and I need some help with the application. Because um, I'm a little worried. I'm like, if, if Patrick Cohn follows me around for a couple of weeks with his drone, he's going to find some stuff on me, and then, he's, and then y'all are going to kick me out of the church. You know, If we're going to just start kicking people out of the church for bad behavior. So what do we do with this? What does it look like for us to, to be a people um, that take... That, that don't get puffed up like the Corinthians do. But when there's stuff that's a problem, we take it seriously and we do something about it. Um, at the same time, being a community of grace and welcome, which every other sermon I've preached this year has been about being a safe place where we can come where we are and be able to love each other for where we are. So, OK, there's a tension here. How are we a safe place where people are sinners and they're growing? But at the same time, when there's something that needs to be called out. And there's something that sometimes needs to be done. We do something about it. Help me out. What do you think? What are what are some applications? How do we practice this together? Um, yes. Yeah. I don't know. Like, who gets to decide what we choose to call out? Yeah. Something. Yeah. That's a that's a major question. How do we decide what gets called out? What's the qualification? And again, part of that, the challenge of that is we live in a time where everything's fuzzy, generally. And so it's fuzzier for us now than it was if we had lived in a different place and time. And some of that's good. Some of it makes it really hard. Yeah. Ted, yes, sir. First of all, I want to say that I'm glad that this was not my week. Because <laughs> I really struggle with this. Yeah. Because um, I'm with you. I, like, I feel like historically, recent history, that the church has erred way on the other side of this. In other words, like we, 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 we want to fight these culture wars. We want to have a very strict like holiness code and moral code. And we want to say... You know, if you're going to be in, then this is what that needs to be in, and otherwise you're out. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's gone way too far, and that a lot of what uh, what we're doing now, what we're seeing in the churches now, is like kind of backtrack on that and say, no, this is supposed to be a loving, welcoming. You know, everybody come on in and be part of this because we've like we've hurt too many people, we've mm-hmm. sent too many people away, we we've we that behavior has caused people to be separated from Christ, and that's not good. But then, but it's but then this is in there still, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think the difference is, and, and, and even what we have right here on the slide right now, it's like he's saying, it's like I don't want you to cut yourself off from the world. I don't want you to separate yourself from other people. Um, I think I think one of the keys to this is being a community of confession. I think that. The problem here is you've got someone that is like sinning, and we're like, cool, let's just go with that. Instead of saying, this person is sinning, and we can be a welcoming, loving community where you can confess that sin, and we can pray over that sin, and we can hold you accountable with that sin, mm-hmm. and we're not going to kick you out be- because we want you in here. But if you're going to say, you know, no, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. Which, again, like, where we are right now, I know me personally, 
uh, arbitrarily, let's say 10 years ago, I would have had a list of things that I said were obviously sin that today I don't think are. And I think that's another challenge that we have mm-hmm. is that I feel that as, as a church, and definitely as a church, we are still in this deconstruction, reconstruction period of really understanding like, what does it mean to really follow Christ? And what, what, what does a holy life look like? And what does a sinful life look like? Mm-hmm. And it's right or wrong, it's confusing right now. Yeah. Um, and That's I, where we are. It's mm-hmm. where we are. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Julie, yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's like a lot, of, you know, that is where we are. But I think there are certain things, like if Paul was having an affair, I would hope to God that the church would surround me and go to Paul. Like, that the men would stand up and go to Paul. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are certain things we think are great, but there are certain things that really kind of aren't, you know? And... You know what I'm saying? Like, and it's Paul was like, no, I'm, I'm doing my thing, you know? What are you going to do? Are you going to let him come and keep preaching? No. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know. I'm, this is not vetted by Paul. So no. <laughs> I, I, no, right on. Yeah, but that's a good example of something, you know, I don't think... Uh, I think that we would say, man, something needs to be done about that. They need some help, and he needs to he needs to change. Like he needs to repent. And yeah, okay. Oh, we got lots of hands. All right, um, let's go Ben first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then, because I completely agree, and I'm gonna like talk to Paul uh, if when that happens. Then I, think, then I think Jesus works. Uh, even if you lost your adulterer. Uh, like, I'm, I'm fine with calling out anything that I don't struggle with. I'm struck by the necessity of uh, a trustworthy, embedded life with one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is the hard part. I, I agree with Ted about learning what it means to confess. I think one of the difficult realities of community learning confession is that we don't know people well enough to say, this is who I am. Because many of us have been burned enough that we're like, not doing that again. So I'm fairly convinced, however it gets worked out, whatever the gray and sort of road that we have to navigate, if, if there's not a sense of embeddedness in life with one another, where we can trust one another, to say this is who I am and they're going to respond with some measure of connectedness to life and grace and justice and we're like this is really really hard work so the thing that has to precede this I think is embedded trusted uh, caring uh, which is a lot and it takes a lot of work to get to that place but it's necessary for any of the stuff to get worked out yeah. that, that makes me think of the reality of separating him from that church in Corinth is that that's that's the church. That's the people that follow Jesus. Like he can't go down the road to Life Church or to the Presbyterian Church, or the other churches that are within walking distance, uh, really quick close by. Um, that's that's it. This is the community, and 
the the way that they interacted and, and connected was different than the way that that happens in our community. So to actually be able to know each other on a different level is really important. Um, let's go Barrett next. Yes, yeah, so in my attempt to kind of leave these things we've done here today together, um, yeah, I want to echo the, that keeping Jesus in front of us is going to help us, I think, in answering the question of what are the things that are called out and what are the things that are not. There is something, there are characteristics, there are, are things that are true about the life that Mary's body carried and birthed in this world. Um, and we hold that picture of Christ, of course. That's why we tell the story mm-hmm. every time. That's why we have this season of Easter and we keep coming back to that story as we do as well. And by keeping that picture in front of us, I think it will help us to know there, that there are things that pervert that life that Jesus started, right? That are definitely twisting it. Yeah. Um, there, there are other things that are going to be gray areas, I guess, based on all the other biases that we bring into this conversation. Um, and let's give grace to each other in that conversation. But there are definitely things like this. Uh, there's an awesome book um, called Torture and Eucharist where a uh, uh, Catholic theologian, Father Kavanaugh, uh, he looks at what happens in the Catholic Church in Chile where you have this um, dictator and people that are in the Catholic Church are in the government and they're making other people in the Catholic Church who are, you know, the military like disappear, right? And so these people that are disappearing and torturing, you know, fellow people, they're, they're going to church together and taking communion together in the same place. Um, and what the Catholic Church decided to do was say, you know what, we need to exercise this excommunication here because that people in our body torturing other people in our body, like that's not what Jesus did. That is a definite perversion of what's happening. You can't come here and like have confession and have absolution of, of sin. Like, that's not a thing you can have anymore if you're going to continue operating this way that is absolutely counter to the Christ that we before us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a softball, like torturing somebody easy, right? <laughs> right. Definitely there are a lot of much more nuanced conversations about how many other things we're talking about. But like, I think that idea of keeping the picture in front of us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When we as a community say, that's definitely not Jesus, yeah, mm-hmm. we, have to, we have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Good. Very good. Terry? It has to be done in love. Yeah. And yeah. that's important. Yeah. Right. If, if we're involved in each other's life and I care about you and I see you doing something wrong, then I go to you out of love for you. Right. Um, and vice versa. Um, I grew up where this was actually practiced, it was practiced yeah. in the church, mm-hmm. it's, and I've seen it happen before. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we called it back then, yeah. uh, but I've seen it happen. Disfellowship, maybe. Mm-hmm. Disfellowship, exactly. Yeah. And yet, it was always over something sexually immoral instead of somebody being greedy or there you money, go. Yeah. money yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, if we look at that, yeah. you know, it's not just one thing there. Uh, but I think that's an important thing is that we do it out of love because we care about that other person mm-hmm. and we care about their soul. And I think when we do it that way, I I think it's I, I feel like that's the best way to do it. Yeah, there's clearly a hope for that in, in what Paul is saying. Like he he wants his spirit to be saved on the day of the Lord. Is what he said. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, I think it. Um, Again, I, I grew up in a church tradition where, you know, whether you did one cup or multiple cups was grounds for, you know, sort of right. celebration during communion. But the thing that really informs me in this passage is the notion of handing them over to Satan, mm-hmm. which I'm also very uncomfortable with. Right. But I think for me that draws the line between self-destructive behaviors and non-self-destructive. Like, there's lots of sins, 
but Paul seems to take specific instance here with something where if you were left to your own devices, there would be a destruction, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, and you look at that list there, and all those, you're going to get in way over your head before you can... So if that's something the church is going to hold up, in Paul's mind, that's where the church is going to head. Yeah. Right? So if this self-destructive behavior is going to be something that we celebrate, then that's going to cause the destruction of the church. So for Paul's mind, this is, this is uh, you know, this is chemotherapy. Yeah. Let's try and, and allow this thing to destroy this person to the point. And, and, and I know you mentioned this morning your drug use in the past, that that may be an indicator for when you allow someone to get to the low, mm-hmm. it will then bring them back. And, and maybe that's mm-hmm. when we draw the line between what we would consider serious enough. Like you said, if you cheat on your spouse, yeah, that might be just self-destructive, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if I cheat on mine, my days will be numbered. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know... <laughs> that's a good destruction it, of your so, yeah, so that Maybe that, that self-destructive behavior is a good hard line to draw from yeah. this difficult passage. Yeah. And I like how we're pointing out, like, in Paul's list, um, there is sexual immorality, but there's also... Uh, greed, he says, is something that is going to... I think he's saying these are things that are going to infect the whole. And slander is another one. Like if we're going around slandering people and we're like, yeah, it's okay, slander's great. I think he's saying slander is something that's infectious. And so, again, how do we do that? All right, we're going to pray now. And what I want to say before we pray is that the good news is that the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit has not left us as orphans in a dark, desperate, confusing world. But he's given us himself, the spirit of Jesus, and he's given us each other. He's at work in these times when it's hard to figure out what to do and what to say and what to how to respond. But we are not alone. And that is good news.